Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way. This is a podcast for serious writers who want to develop their skills in artistry and stand out in a crowded industry by taking intelligent, creative risks. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I hold a PhD in literature. I'm the author of uh, numerous books, and I take a very analytical approach to art making, emphasizing both efficiency and experimentation. So uh, I'm here with Ryan Fitzpatrick, and thanks for joining me, Ryan. And, and Ryan, again, and I uh, co-created the 95 Books uh, Reading Challenge. If you go to 95books.com, you can get you know all sorts of information about that. Uh, but what we thought we'd do uh, is every little while throughout the year, we'd kind of check and see where we're at, uh, what we've been reading, and what's kind of just we found most interesting in our reading. And then we thought we'd also just try a th- a thing where we every once in a while not all the time but just you know uh, every few months say we'd read one book in common at least and then talk about that book so uh the book we chose today uh, uh is this book called refuse canlet in ruins um edited by hannah mcgregor julie rack and aaron wonker so we'll talk about that a little later but first i want to just you know uh give ryan a chance to talk about the book that he kind of found most interesting um, uh, but Ryan, why don't we just briefly go through how many books we've read? So I've read twenty-five books so far this year, and we're we're recording this by the way in uh, early March. <clears throat> so uh, it's about two months roughly. I've somehow read twenty-five books, which is probably a record for me. Um, I've got seven poetry books, eight nonfiction books, six uh, novels, and four. Uh, I call them comics, but they're basically graphic novels. How are you doing? How am I doing? Uh, so I'm I'm sitting at 33. Wow, which is the you're like um, a third of the way done. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that's the that's the effect of like the the empty scholarly time of the postdoc. It's like I anytime I feel like I should be working and don't want to work, I read a book. Yep, that's uh, what I've been doing. And, I've been procrastinating my way into reading half a, a quarter of a hundred books in two months it's perfect I'd, I'd recommend it like um you want to get readings your goal just don't do your other work because <laughs> reading reading can feel like work and if you uh and you can call it work sometimes well i even uh, so, i started doing yeah. more book reviews so I, that's how i justified it, it, it as literally work but still i shouldn't be doing these book reviews really I'm mostly trying to read all the books that are on my shelves that I've bought and have never looked at, uh, but we'll get to that. Uh, so I've read 33 this so far in the past two months. Um, 19 books of poetry, because uh, you know you can read a book of poetry in an hour. Um, seven books of fiction, which is not quite where I should be, because if you'll if you actually listen to the last time we did this, I said I was going to try to read a book of fiction a week. And that's not quite there because I uh, bailed a couple of weeks ago, uh, and then um, and then eight eight books of uh, like th- mostly theory, but like theory nonfiction. There's a couple kind of uh, more general nonfiction ebooks in there. Pretty so impressive. That's, that's not- <clears throat> so you know, I almost read the same amount of fiction, which is kind of funny because um, I, I I also not as rigid as you, but I made a choice to try to read more fiction. That's why I've committed myself to doing these book reviews because I was like, I just need a deadline because <laughs> I wasn't yeah. reading as many novels, I, I noticed. Uh, so can you remind me 
the how much of that is for your postdoc, like actually related to it? Is it mostly the theory? Oh, uh, depend depends how uh, depends how loose we want to apply what my postdoc stuff is. <laughs> um, so some of some of the poetry, like pretty much all the theory in one way or another, is like the postdoc. Uh, the fiction I'm like applying as this kind of like um, scholarly exercise having to do with teaching is that like I'm being asked to teach ca- Canadian literature courses, and I realized I haven't read any uh, any fiction. And it, so when I built a course for last fall, uh, the three fiction books, the three novels we read were basically the three novels I had read during my PhD. That's an exaggeration, <laughs> but. I thought it would be a funny joke. Uh, it wasn't. Uh, but um, so, yeah, in one way or another, and some of it is just like me, like I said, pulling poetry books off my shelves and going, well, I bought this book yesterday. It was like, oh, I bought this book by Ken Belford from 1970 that literally no one in Canadian literature has ever read. But I bought it. So <laughs> I never heard of it. it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I find I read a lot of poetry. I, I've only read seven uh, lately for some reason, but um, I actually need to read like four in the next few days. <laughs> but um, actually, the next book I'm going to read is Paul Zitz's new book uh, exhibit uh, A. I think it's called. I just misplaced it here. But um, well, yeah, I, heard, I, I don't I read a lot of older poetry. I feel like that's my um, my weak point now. Is that almost everything I read is like recent books for review. Well, and I was, I was like, I'm interested in, I've been kind of like jabbering whoever will listen to me, which isn't very many people uh, about this. And there was a, there was a Twitter thread earlier today by uh, Catherine Mockler oh, yeah. uh, talking about the, the idea of the book graveyard, that thing that <laughs> uh, a lot slash most <coughs> authors feel uh, their book comes out and during the season, there's all this excitement. Uh, they get reviews, they get asked to do readings, whatever. And then a couple years later that, that the book, it's like the book never existed. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one talk, no one's read it. No one talks about it. Everybody's talking about like the stuff at, um, right at the cutting edge of what's coming out, whatever, whatever the, the presses are, are pushing that season. Uh, and so like that, um, like that's something I think that's worth thinking about is, uh, how do we, how do we read um, back a bit? Whether that's a couple years or a couple decades or what? Like, and what can what um, that's older um, uh, can can kind of shape or how to, can older things or older books uh, speak to where we are now? I always have an issue like with that, where I'm going through my big stacks of unread poetry books that were sent to me for review, yeah. and I. I, I Every calendar year, like I, it flips over, and I think to myself, "Well, how old is too old now?" Because I yeah. have a lot of leeway with that poetry column that I do, but at the same time, like it's the expectation that I'm going to be reviewing newer books. So, like now that's yeah. 2019, I feel like I can't review anything from 2017. I can kind nope. of maybe get away with 2018. Like if it says 2018 on the book, I'll consider reviewing it, even though, and I won't pay close attention to like, was it fall 2018? Or was it like January 2018 that the book came out? Um, yeah. I probably should, but I don't. Um, but I know that like I'm very aware like every January, like, okay, can I justifiably like even read this book anymore? Should I just get rid of it because of the date on it and never read it because of the pace at which I feel I have to be reading new stuff or or what? Yeah. 
some of it's really interesting stuff. Like like every once in a while, a book that I've been really excited about and really looking forward to reading, I just won't read for whatever reason it is. Yeah. Um, and then it kind of hits that graveyard space, yeah, where you kind of feel like, I don't want to start reviewing really old books because it's like, then all of a sudden maybe the free press will come down on me and say, hey, we just noticed you're reviewing like really old books. Now we're going to pay close attention to what you do review yeah, um, as opposed to just what you want to do. Um, and you, you'd need to pitch them a specific column saying what I'd like to do is review these old books and they would have to agree to it. Exactly. And I, I actually have pitched columns like that in the past and people don't are interested in them. Not the free press, but like generally I pitch that idea around. It's not a lot of takers for that idea. Like, so I haven't yeah. seen this thread, but I know Mark was talking about the same idea a few months ago. And it is that I find like books have this weird, like strange life without you, like where every once in a while I have a weird resurgence, even if it's very small. Like right now, for some reason, I'm sell- I, I just got my royalty statements. Uh, so right now I, I'm, I noticed weirdly I'm selling a lot of books in the U.S. of Clockfire. Okay. Like by a lot, I mean like you know, like a hundred plus, but not like a crazy amount. I mean, that's a lot. That's That's a lot. lot, Like for a book that I haven't been promoting that came out in 2012, like why is there suddenly like even that mild interest in it? Who knows? I assume someone's teaching it. One person taught it in a big... I I assume so, but you know, it's kind of mystifying because you kind of, you kind of wonder about weird blips like that. But I think for the most part, that's, that's a weird blip. Like you would, yeah, it'd just be like dead typically, right? Even that, like, even when you have a weird resurgence of, like, a zombie life of this book, it's, like, baffling (laughs) because it's so abnormal. When we think about books as being, like, these perennial sellers, I think. I know that people are disappointed to find they're not. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Well, what's the book, though, that you want to talk about, the one that you kind of found most interesting uh, of the 33 you've read? Uh, So I'm going to mention... Before I talk about that book, I'm gonna, just going to mention a couple like honorable mentions sure. that I don't know. I've been thinking about a lot and may show up if we get as far as doing this to the end of the year. May show up somewhere on my my year end. Who knows? <coughs> uh, one is I just wanted to like gesture to this set of books that uh, Duke University Press has put out recently uh, of Stuart Hall. So like the, the first, literally the first book I finished this year was I think it's called Cultural Studies 1983. It's just a set of lectures he did about the history of cultural studies, like up mm. to that point in 1983. Uh, and just really, like, if you want to understand, like, um, literary theory, and especially mm. the kind of literary theory you and I would have been taught as as people who are maybe a bit older. I don't think literary theory gets taught really anymore. Um, that kind of, like, here's, we're going to move through structuralism and post-structuralism, and then... Well, so. M- my daughter's actually yeah. taking a class on that, but they don't teach. So it does still get taught, but you know what they do, Ryan, is they don't teach. It like cuts off at Derrida, more yeah. or less. Well, because that's like that's in, where in first year at least. Yeah, it gets like because theory gets really complicated, and Her I won't go years. into that. But I just I just wanted to gesture to those because they're real. They're really excellent. So it's that one, the Cultural Studies, nineteen eighty three, <laughs> and then a two volume set that's just called Essential Essays. And, of course, Stuart Hall never, like, when he was alive, had, like, a solo book. Hmm. Like, all his – he's got tons of essays that he published. But, like, all the the books, like, the monographs he published were co-written. So this is, like – this is a pretty big, uh, like, event in hmm. cultural studies or critical theory or whatever you want to call it. 
the other the other kind of honorable mention is this interesting book I read called Beyond Settler Time, called Mark Rifkin and by by Mark Rifkin and it's another theory book, um, and he's what he's doing is uh, he's thinking about uh, temporality as a kind of like um, another site in which uh, settler colonialism oppresses uh, indigenous people, and so one of the so there's a couple things that I think are interesting that he's doing. One is um, he talks a lot about like frames frames of reference, and I think that's a kind of transferable like like settlers will have like a certain kind of frame of reference for how they think through the way that indigenous people live. Uh, and the other is this idea tied to time, um, where the, part of the argument he makes is like even when even when because of the way that time works under settler colonialism as this kind of like unified monolithic, like almost like a kind of linear thing. Uh, even when we imagine uh, indigenous people as not in like one of the kind of criticisms you see all the time is like, no, you, you need to not imagine indigenous people in the past they they live in the present. Yeah. Uh, sure. And he, he, ar- he basically argues that like uh, part of the problem with that is, is that doesn't account for like, uh, a kind of like um, indigenous understandings of time, right? So mm-hmm. if you imagine uh, indigenous people as contemporary in the present, you also have to imagine them as like under the logics of modernism. Uh, so I think that's kind of interesting, maybe maybe kind of weird and problematic, but I'm super compelled by it for mm-hmm. reasons. Uh, please, uh, if you listen to this, please at me and tell me that I'm right or wrong. Um, <laughs> Yeah, the book I actually want to talk about now that I've rambled about those two books, it, and this fits within our conversation about the um, about the book Graveyard, is this book that was basically sitting on my shelf for like uh, like seven or eight years. Like I bought it, and <laughs> just sat there. Uh, and it's a book by Alice Notley uh, oh, yeah. called Disobedience from two thousand one. Hmm. Um, and I can't remember if I bought it right before I moved to Vancouver or right after, but it like sat on my shelf for like a long time. Um, and it's a book that I had known about since it came out because it was a bit of, uh, it was like a celebrated book that it, that came out. Like I was on the Buffalo Poetics listserv at that point, uh, which was a mistake, but like it did, like I, yeah, I was on uh, that listserv too. Get, it was really bad. Um, but, um, so this was like kind of, it was hell at that moment. It was the book that like everybody was like gushing, gushing over. Um, and so I picked it up, and because I was just pulling books off my shelf just to read them, uh, I picked it up, and it's aside from the fact that it's 300 pages, so 300 page book of poetry, um, it's just fucking stellar. Really? Uh, and wow. what it does, what what it does, it kind of does this like uh, New York school, because New York school, like I do this, I do that, in this kind of like expanded, like really complex way. So the book ostensibly is about, if we can say a book of poetry is about anything, it's a, it follows her to, um, she moves to Paris and lives there for a while. Uh, and the book kind of like is her response to living in this foreign city in the kind of mid to late 90s. It was 96, 97. Um, and so <coughs> like, so a lot of it is like her as a, as a woman, uh, having to deal with like this, uh, heteropatriarchal, like society, like one of the characters in the book is like, a, a PI who's constantly following her. 
that shifting names. At one point, he's like Robert Robert Mitchum, Robert Mitchum. At one point, she names him like he's like Hardwood or something. Um, but also at this, also at the same time that this is happening, she's responding to there's like a large scale, like I don't know if it's like a general strike happening in like 1997 in Paris and so she's there while this is happening she's responding to that very public like event like and thinking through the politics of like living in this place while this is happening and not having a lot of stakes in that uh, and it's and it's weird it's this book that's like over 20 years old now and it really rings like it rings contemporary but you can see the kind of like thread of history a little bit through it you can see like uh, discussion. She's discussing like questions of the of the veil on like Muslim women in this book. Hmm. Like um, that becomes this big thing, like not just in France but also like here. Um, so it's kind of it's kind of wildly contemporary, hmm. like uh, and like excessive and messy and invested in the everyday, but also like uh, not like. Like it's direct, but it's it it it's as my friend Danielle would say, it's dwelling in the mess of the contradictions of life mm. um, by being this kind of like multifaceted like thing. That's fascinating. And not editing itself into something clean. I've heard a lot about Alice Notley, but I haven't actually read any of her work. I don't believe, although that sounds wrong, but I I, I don't think I have. But uh, that book. Uh, it's impressive any book that length in poetry is any good because usually books that length you know are weak it's just a weird yeah. oddity in poetry specifically and it's not like it's not like because that would be, that's my worry too right is that like you write that much chances are you need an edit uh but this book doesn't need that hmm. like the the length is part of the point like it's hmm. part of the kind of formal choice that she's making like she can't be like excessive in the way she needs to be like if this was 100 pages it wouldn't work like it needs to be 300 pages like you need to you need like it needs that um in the reading it needs that duration like of sitting with it and the only other book i would have read or reread recently that like that made me feel that way is like uh emma rissy phillips song which is another book that like on the outside maybe looks too long but once you're in once you're in it like you're there's something in the duration of reading it that like has a kind of like affective um component to it hmm that's interesting my my book that i was most interested in is this uh graphic i don't i call it a comics i like i say i I don't like to call graphic novels anything other than the comics whether they're long short or whatever for the simple reason that I just, I don't know, I just find one, one Scott McCloud has done a lot of work explaining why you should say comics, <laughs> but two, um, uh, it just sounds so pretentious to say graphic novel. I don't know, for whatever reason, like I don't even, I, I just, you know, it's a novel or it's not a novel. Like novel is the, like comics are the medium and the novel is the specific type so yeah. why graphic novel like comics novel would make more sense for example but anyway what this giant's well thing is is a really interesting weird uh, fascinating thing to me because it's a bit of an odd publishing experiment 
um, with this, this this author, Scott A. Ford. He's a writer and an illustrator. And I'll link in the uh, show notes to this. I'll put a link to where you can see Giant Swell because it's all uh, online. It's a single panel comic. But when you buy it as a book, it's a, you know, a little full book and it opens up. It's almost like a box. Like the, like the binding is almost like a box made out of the front and back covers. When you open it up and it has a single page that you, t- you know, kind of take out uh, and you fold out. And the, the, the pa- it's a series of pages that folds out into a single you know, long 20-foot comic panel. So it's li- physically 20 feet long. Um, when you lay it out front to back, but he, he's got this same this sole image available on the website. So if you go to again, if if you're listening to this and you go to jonathanball.com/slash twenty eight, I'll have like a link to the books Ryan's talking about, and also a link to this Scott uh, A. Ford's The Giant's Well. And uh, when you look at it online, you won't really understand it. It's not like the same thing as looking at it. Um, as one physical long item, uh, but you can look at it online. You can like basically scroll down a page, and you're kind of going down. The story kind of goes down into this well, uh, and uh, it's this ca- character that kind of keeps you know descending into this well, and or and he's, he's just sort of talking to a ghost uh, as he's descending into this well, who's like there haunting this well, and it just keeps going down and down and down and down. So if you're looking on the if you have the physical thing laid out in front of you, um, they're discussing how this well was formed when uh, this giant uh, monstrosity was sort of trapped inside this mountain. And then as it died um, uh, and like the area hollowed out uh, as it kind of rotted away, you know, it left this well. Uh, and it, and then the story that they're telling so this guy's descending through the well and the story they're telling is sort of taking place they're talking about being in the well as well uh, and what's interesting about it is of course again if you're on the web page you can kind of scroll down and read it the way you would have to like you know when i me and my daughter after i bought it we folded it out all the way across the room and, and like read it you know kind of crouching down and like kneeling like going down beside it but if you stand yeah, back it's gonna, gonna ask you that because like you had sent me you sent me the image last night and i kind of read it on <laughs> as this kind of like one yeah. big like almost like a web comic yeah um but uh i was gonna ask like did you actually like unfold the whole yeah, thing unfold the whole like, thing because this is the thing if you if you unfold the whole thing physically and lay it out you can stand away from it and see the whole image at once which you can't do when you're mm. You know, because this is one single comics panel image, and of course, when you do that, when you see it all at once from that like broader vantage point, you can't read the story anymore. But you can actually see like the outline of this giant's body. Like you can see the corpse, like the the shape that the well takes, which is this sort of silhouette of this corpse, and see where the lights are in its body and all these things, um, and all the, how the lights are kind of lighting the cavity. So I, I thought it was a really interesting uh, publishing experiment. One. Um, two, I yes, they're all hand assembled also, so they're kind of these interesting weird little objects. Because of course, you can't actually print something that large. You have to, he has to print them all smaller, and he has to hand assemble them into a single panel and everything. Uh, I think it's an interesting kind of publishing experiment. It's an interesting book object. <coughs> I thought it was interesting how the physical version of it is so uh, has this extra dimension that the web version doesn't have. So it's an interesting 
publishing experiment in that sense in that he's kind of giving the whole thing away for free on this website but at the same time for the for the real full experience of it you'd have to kind of purchase this thing from him mm. uh, or from mcnally robinson or wherever i bought it from mcnally but I, I don't know what other bookstores it's in um or if it's just randomly available out online or what but i know you can get it from him of course um uh, but it has this whole other like level which is also this physical artifact is just completely different experience from the digital one um, which I think is just really interesting uh, and then the other thing I just think is interesting on a formal level is he's because it's one single panel but it's a it's a narrative unfolding in time uh, right. he has to f solve the problem of how do you have one image that you know unfolds multiple you know moments in time and he solves the problem kind of the way they Saw them an old, uh, um, uh, old petroglyphic, uh, or, uh, or or not petroglyphic, but old um, paintings sometimes solve this problem where they're showing multiple, you know, moments in time across a long. Yeah. Yeah, usually, it's on a, a horizontal plane, uh, he, whereas he's kind of doing more of a vertical plane, but. Uh, he, he solves with these lights. So it's like you're in this dark well, and there's these little lights, and each time there's a light, um, kind of lighting this part of the well it's actually a new move forward in the narrative um, so i thought it was really kind of an interesting set of formal problems that he had kind of created mm. and solved um i just thought it was like a fasting little object in that sense it's just so very different from a lot of the things that i've seen uh even well, other work that that, you know, that guy's done yeah the, it, the way you're talking about it it has this interesting relationship to kind of the way it conceives of the like the space of the narrative versus the kind of time of the narrative, right? Mm -hmm. Where the space is this kind of like static thing, and when you lay it all out, you can kind of see the shape of the space in which the narrative is playing out. But the kind of the time is like broken up in the way you're describing, like where you can see it, but as you're reading it, you understand like there's a kind of linear sequence mm -hmm. to it. Yeah. yeah. I find myself just on a really simple level. I'm just really interested in books that make you physically engage with them in some manner. Like when I was a kid, I was like choose your own adventure books. Uh, my first book is kind of a choose your own adventure book, you know, in the, in that way too. And um, I just, it just, it just so it was really kind yeah. of uh, an interesting, you know, publishing experiment that I, I was kind of gravitating towards in that sense. Um, so yeah, anyway, that's my sort of, you know, thing, the giant's well. So again, if you go to jonathanwell.com slash 28, you, I'll link to the book Ryan talked about in giant's well, and also a link to, um, refuse Canlet and ruins, which is, uh, is it again, refuse or refuse? Refuse. Or I guess refuse. it could be both, right? Like, cause, cause there's these three parts. So there's three parts to this book, uh, where, um, one is, you know, about refusing this refusal. One is called refusal. Part two is refuse, like uh, you know, garbage, and then part three re slash fuse, as if you know, relighting or lighting, you know, either is, some uh, that's towards some new like hope or or, or, or the relighting the dumpster fire. I guess that is Canadian literature, Canlet. Um, I so, took I took refuse as like uh, to put things back together. Yeah, put things back the together, refuse. or even you know, uh, I, I think that's actually the explicit thing that they say is they they're they're thinking more of that idea of refusing like by reassembling in a different manner not not to yeah. reassemble the thing as it was but in some new uh, orientation um would you be able to maybe summarize this book in a nutshell ryan i i i i feel like i could do it i feel like this book is it, so this is a collection of essays and poems and various texts 
that all sort of revolve around um, this idea of Canadian literature. Uh, and you're quoted in the book as talking about it. So I think maybe you, you're a good person to maybe just summarize. <laughs> Ryan's quoted on page uh, 80. As Vancouver poet and scholar and Ryan Fitzpatrick has phrased it, what gets called Canlet is historically a site of struggle. Uh, and so uh, maybe just mention what you, say what you meant by that uh, in a bit more detail and then maybe how it relates to this book. Uh, so, yeah, it's interesting to be quoted as a scholar, but have that quote be like from a thrown off tweet. Yeah. But I think I would have made like in the heat of some some moment in what gets called the the dumpster fire. <laughs> um, the dumpster fire that is also a ruin. Um, so this this book, I, I want to make a case for this book that it's um, like important, but like not in the way that sometimes it's gotten talked about like i don't think it's this like like i don't think it's the book itself is an event like i don't think the book is this thing that's going to create a rupture i think the book is um what it's doing is really similar to i was describing this to a friend of mine it's really similar to uh, books like uh, this this book telling it edited by the telling it book collective which is uh sky lee lee miracle Daphne Mar- Marlatt and Betsy Warland. And it's what what this book is is it's the <coughs> like the incomplete proceedings of uh, a conference. I think it's the, the is it the Women in Words conference? God, I'm going to look like a real asshole if I got that wrong. <laughs> but I think that like it's one of those it's one of those kind of conferences from the late 80s early 90s that people will quote in a chain so like writing through race or like the appropriate mm. the appropriate voice i think this is like women in words but like i'm not going to sit here and reread it to to figure that out and what i think uh, refuse or, or refuse or refuse is doing is something really similar to that except the event it's collecting texts from or responses to is not a conference or like a event in a physical space it's collecting from the kind of responses that happened on, like, on social media and um, in, uh, in like, kind of news articles online, right? So it's this much more dispersed base, and as a result of that, uh, the book is kind of, like, uh, not non-academic, but it's kind of, like, it has this mix of, like, academic writers coming from the institution and people working, like, in more in the literary community, not attached to the university, um, and what what it's collecting is a set of responses to a number of events or a number of issues that have cropped up all around one another, and they're kind of tangled together. One is the Stephen Galloway scandal. One is um, the um, the uh, similar scandal at Concordia around two profs. One is the uh, the reser- the uh, kind of reappearance of uh, the appropriation of voice as a kind of issue within Canadian literature. Uh, Just a quick side note on that. So that particular Seattle yeah. is amusing to me in this really minor way, which is that yeah. that was kicked off by the Halnaid Zivieki publishing an article calling for an appropriation prize. Uh, I think a little jokingly, yeah. but nevertheless, <laughs> um, in, in a really ill-mattered way that kind of uh, was it right at the f- front of a issue of Write magazine that 
featured indigenous authors. And so it was very, it was seen, I think, kind of rightly so as a very disrespectful thing. What was funny to me about it, just on a really minor personal level is that I had applied for that job to run that magazine and instead Hal got it. <laughs> They're like, no, you don't, we don't want you. We want this guy. <laughs> and, it, you know, not that I would have, I mean, I wouldn't have done that, but, but you know, he was a good yeah. editor in other respects. Yeah. Um, well, I will, I will say that like it was triggered by that, but like it, that it, wasn't, that um, was just the flat, like that was just a flashpoint. As you say, like th- that stuff was in the air in many forms. Yeah. Cause I remember uh, there was that Lionel Shriver talk like in Australia that kind of made the rounds on social media that I think happened before where, uh, <coughs> she was talking about, she should be able to, she was like wearing a sombrero on stage or something. Mm-hmm. It was like, 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 like significantly less dis- more disrespectful than than uh the right editorial but the right the right editorial was just uh like poorly poorly placed in, yeah in i don't respects. I, like yeah it's well yeah, but, but i think what fun. you're talking about though is the heart of this book is kind of that that yeah. is the argument is that there's been these recent um scandals in canadian literature They've yeah. all kind of pointed at these fissures in these problems in Canlet, but the, uh, the argument sort of this book, I think, in many respects is, uh, and the argument of the authors therein uh, is, these are just the tip of like an iceberg, like where yeah. these problems have been simmering forever. Uh, it's not a new thing. They're just, you know, these flashpoints uh, for controversy. When people do th- find these moments to be uh, when people do get accused of overreaction in these moments, I think the, def- the 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 proper way to see that is, you know, they're not reacting specifically to the thing in front of them so much as this larger yeah. institutional systemic issue. Uh, yeah. So the, the 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 line part that I on page one forty three the editors uh, write. Um, uh, they talk about Lauren Lauren Berlant's concept of cruel optimism, which describes how people often become attached to ideas or objects that stand in the way of their thriving. In the context of Canlet, you might look at how some people have become attached to an optimistic view of Canlet as a thriving literary community, rather than noting how Canlet continues to structurally silence, tokenize, exploit, and exclude many voices. So to me, the issue kind of at the heart of this book uh, is... Even if I, you know, at times disagree or even or agree with something in uh, what people have said around these particular moments, it seems like that core argument is, to me, is really powerful and strong argument. You've got this view, this public view being proffered all the time of Canada, of this diverse, inclusive, you know, tight-knit community. And and for people listening in the U.S. who maybe don't have a clue what I'm talking about, because about half the people who listen to this podcast are actually in the U.S., whether they're expat Canadians or not, I'm not sure. But um, uh, it's maybe confusing if you don't understand Canadian literature and, like, what Canada is like to understand, like, the smallness of it and the kind of small-town mentalities and the high school-ishness of uh, this national community. Um, It's a very... um, cliquey and very um high schooly in certain respects in other ways it's you know a little healthier than that implies but then in other ways it's just as kind of sick as that implies and i think like uh this book is yeah it's an interesting phenomenon as a book in certain respects 
one of the things that I thought was really interesting just going through it is like just looking at it made me really aware of um, what a baffling position that I think I have personally relating to Canadian literature and like even just when I look at this book like I can look at this book and think okay well one thing I think is always worth doing in candidate controversies is just kind of being weirdly aware of your position <laughs> relative to other people <laughs> because it's it's such a weird you know intermixing of uh, connection in Canada, in Canada it's so strange like when I look at this book it's like well Aaron Wonker of course I one of the quitters I went to school with you know and I'm, I'm friends with um, Tannis McDonald I've you know known uh, briefly uh, at different moments Nellie Capel you know I'm f- pretty close to right uh you know she i went to school with her as well we had a lot of you know we've had a lot of influence on each other's uh a couple of each other's poetry books you know she came up with the title clockfire you know for my book clockfire having all one word laura moss was one of my first professors uh in english um at when she was at the university of manitoba where um uh i took you know she actually was one of my referee references when i went to calgary uh, and okay. at one point, um, uh, you know, and it wrote me a very kind reference uh, along the lines of, uh, I think somewhere in the reference, I, I actually, I, I can't remember what she had said, but at some point she like told me like verbally, like, yeah, I wasn't going to write your reference because initially, because, you know, when you first took my first class, you were a total nightmare. <laughs> she goes, but then somehow magically, like you took another class of me and you seem to have like turned it all around <laughs> so anyway <laughs> it's it's weird like we have these w- interesting um and then of course like you say like you're you're just showing up in the book as a quote like it, it's always odd to to me like how interconnected canada is on certain levels and then like how different and disconnected everybody also seems to be on you know fundamental ways and, and in many yeah. ways i think the book is kind of it, it, it's interesting to see all these different perspectives circling around these same few events and to see, yeah, there's a, you know, there's, there's a lot of agreement here, of course, because they've all been edited and collected, you know, together. But even within the book, you've got this real acknowledgement of um, just a, a diversity of experience around the same set of people and events. And it's a, it's a fascinating, weird, um, I think it's hard, might be hard to understand outside of Canada, you know, what, the I, literary I don't, community in this country is. I don't is. agree with that. You don't think so? Well, I, I, well, I think part of it because I, I do think the thing. <laughs> like I, the book, I have Martin Adams' email address on my phone for some reason, Ryan. I don't. I've never contacted her or talked to her for any reason. But like, I've like literally like was flipping through my phone, and deleting contacts the other day. Yeah. And like, and I have Martin Adams' email address in here. Like, <laughs> I mean, I would say it, except I might get sued. But like. Like how? Like that's how small this country is. Like a person I don't even yeah. know, but like the largest author in the country, uh, somehow is so, like in my phone. So here, let me let me try to say why I think like maybe this isn't as uh, far fetched a thing outside of the country. So you're right to point out. Like I think the the point the the part of the editor's argument that they're making by collecting all this stuff uh, that is the strongest is exactly what you're pointing out is that by uh, by collecting all this material that's generally would be see- otherwise seen as ephemeral, uh, they're actually um, like pointing out the way that Canadian literature as a, as a kind of like 
as a sign or a structure or however you want to do it, like has this kind of like fetish. It's like mm-hmm. fetishistic in a way in that it obscures all these problems by talking about like diversity and multiculturalism and um, which isn't to say those things can't be good, but it is to say that they can be empty, like empty signs that cover yeah. up like uh, all this stuff. But one of one of my issues with the book is that Canadian literature frame. And this is me talking as like a poetics person and not a Canadian literature person <laughs> is that for me, this set of events or this set of uh, like, like this stuff getting pointed out doesn't start with like Galloway. It no. doesn't even start with like uh, Emma Healy's article about the Concordia stuff. It starts with uh, hearing, Oh, in the Bay area, they, uh, they banned drinking at events because there's been too many assaults or to hear about the scandals around like, um, Tallinn, Tallinn and, uh, alt, alt in the States. And then hot on the heels of that stuff is, uh, Kenny Goldsmith and the body of Michael Brown. So these problems are, are part of like a larger kind of set of questions and challenges and critiques that are being posed, um, about not just about like Canada as a formation or Canadian literature as a formation, but literary production and like uh, not even just literary production, but cultural production. Cause you could think about this in same, same terms as like something like uh, me too or times up like mm. those kind of like events. And it's the, for me, it's the duration of it. That's interesting. Because the duration, like change is going to come out of the duration. Because otherwise sure. you could go, you could bracket off Galloway and like it's this isolated incident. Or you could bracket off Concordia as this isolated incident. And, and and in the kind of pooling them together, which is what was happening on Twitter, because these things were happening all at the same time. Uh, and I think the book is like emulating that. Uh, in the pooling of all these things together, we see... We get glimpses of these larger structures that are oppressive, but we also get like a duration of critique that defies the way we could talk. I was talking to a friend of mine who was complaining that we t- when people talk about Me Too, it's often framed as like the Me Too era, right? Yeah. Which already put, which already brackets it off and puts it in the past, hmm. as if it's not this ongoing set of questions that are actually much much bigger than that. So I, I think that's the strength of the book, is the way it's uh, collecting all this kind of material that might otherwise be seen as separate uh, in an emulation of the way that social media was collecting it and um, the, way, the, way it's, uh, the way it's working in this extended duration of critique that has, unfortunately has been chilled a bit by um, the kind of like, by the, basically by the things like the Galloway libel suit. Sure. The way he's suing his critics, um, and so like the threat of that, the threat of uh, legal action could come for anyone, right? Making a critique like like the critiques in this book. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating, strange. Um, uh, I really appreciate just on a simple level the. Um, way that the book pulls kind of poet when i first like flipped through the book and i thought oh there's a bunch of poems in here too i was like eh, kind of <laughs> cringing about it but actually they work really well and uh have you know some really 
uh, in, in many ways are some of the most pointed and you know angry missives and there's a great uh, some just fascinating great moments I really like just kind of I've got to get to my class uh, shortly but when, when the last um, <laughs> line the last piece in the book is Joshua Whitehead and there's a great yeah. moment uh, because of course the book as you say is kind of mostly structured as a response to these things that are, don't start with the UBC accountable scandals but uh, the Galloway kind of sca- scandal, but they kind of revolve around, they hit this flashpoint coming out of that uh, moment of the UCBC accountable uh, letter. Um, and I really liked how the last piece in the book uh, by Whitehead plays on this a little bit by saying, you know, I wonder if Canlet will ever recognize it as part of the ecosystem of the literary nation state and to maintain the responsibility and accountability to its land base and those who protect it. Maybe I'll come back to you, Canlet, if you can tell me who you're accountable to. <laughs> I, I thought that was, the moments like that are really, uh, you know, they're really damning and interesting to me. Um, and yeah. I, I thought there was, uh, I'm very curious to see like, where things go from this point, because as you say, I think I think it is an unfolding process. Um, that this book is, I, I think that it does a good job of not trying to um, coordinate it off as a particular specific over moment, but more of this flashpoint to, as they say, kind of maybe suggest the possibility of refusing, um, like refusing the old notion. The, the old cliches or stereotypes of an inclusive, uh, uh, you know, kumbaya canlet and, uh, you know, re, you know, fusing it together in something more um, tenable uh, yeah. and realistic. Well, and, that, and that's the problem moving forward is like, how, how does, uh, how do you take a book like this uh, and, not just treat it as the bracketing off of something that happened and move it forward into not just a set of questions, but um, I don't want to say a set of solutions, but like mm-hmm. uh, paths, like something maybe. else. Yeah. yeah. And like, I, I, I'm, if you want to talk about like positioning with regard to this, I want to recognize that like we're two like freaking white dudes. Yeah. Cisgendered settler white dudes. Yeah for expounding on this book at length um and like and i do want to say like i like a i don't have any solutions to any of these problems uh other than to maybe self-abolish but i don't know what that looks like yet <laughs> well maybe but, i'll um, email Marta out and see what she has to say about it i, very, I don't know yeah, where i got well, it i literally had no interaction with Marta in my whole life but i did notice my kid say, the other don't, day don't worry about it John. my kid got the phone the other day and pressed uh and started emailing her yeah. <laughs> but I managed to like notice and like delete it before he sent it. My, my like two year old was like emailing Marty Atwood in the process of this gibberish auto correcting thing. Yeah, but, but I but I do want to say like because I, I also want to recognize you have to go to your class. But uh, yeah, I, unfortunately. But but I do I do want to say like I like we're not the ones to like say what the solution's going to be. So it's interesting to think through what our position in regards to this set of events are. And how we can like, like if not self-abolish, at least like step back, um, and like what like like what it what it means to like um, refuse when refusal like 
is impossible. Like that's my actually my question coming out of this book is like how do you because they how do you refuse um, when to refuse is to walk into the fucking lake and yeah. die. It's, it's um, an interesting one, and uh, it's one of why I wanted to read this book, and I suggested maybe we kind of take it on just to kind of get myself thinking a bit more fully about these uh, these issues. Then, because when it happens, of course, it, it's all just kind of happening in different moments, and it's hard to kind of see it all as a lump. Like you're experiencing, you know, all, all this stuff happening one thing after the other. But you, to have it in a book like this, to me at least, it, it kind of it really compresses it into a critical mass in a certain respect. I, I think it's it's much. I'm taking it all. I find it a lot more um, processable on some levels uh, in terms of like a thing I can think about maybe, but harder yeah. to process on other levels because it just seems so so large a set of questions. And I think uh, definitely you know something we can maybe talk about more when we talk some more about when we procrastinate another 25 books into our reading list. <laughs> 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 All right, I got to go to class. So talk to you later, Ryan. Yeah.